Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and you're listening to Novel Conversations, a radio program about the world's greatest stories. Each week on Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one novel, and together we summarize the story for you. We'll introduce you to the characters, tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. And at the end of the show, I talk to our researcher, Ted Schwartz, for our end notes. Ted always has something interesting to tell us about the book and the author. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This week, I'm going to have a conversation about the novel Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kessler. And I'll be joined in conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. Joan, Patrick, hello. Hi, Frank. Hello, Frank. Before we get started, let me read you a brief summary of our novel Darkness at Noon. Set in an unnamed East European country just before World War II, Darkness at Noon is the story of Nikolas Salmanovich Rubashov, an original hero of the revolution and now accused as a traitor to the party. Rubashov's story is told to us through flashbacks, diary excerpts, trial testimony, Rubashov himself, and even some very interesting quotes at the beginning of some of the chapters. What we learn about the crimes Rubashov has been accused of, the crimes he has actually committed, how he eventually pleads to these crimes, and his final punishment make up the story of Darkness at Noon. So, Joan, was this your first time reading Darkness at Noon? No, actually, this is my second time. Do you remember your reaction to it the first time you read it? Shock. Why shock? Well, the first time... I was caught up in this story and felt bad for Rubashov and really couldn't believe what was happening to him and how it was happening to him. But the second time, of course, I had a little clearer head and I realized I had heard about communists, I had read about communists, but this was getting into a communist mind. And it's very scary there. These people believe that the end justifies the means, whatever ends they want. And it was a bit difficult to keep remembering that our protagonist, Rubashov, was not a hero. Patrick, how about you? Was this the first time you read Darkness at Noon? No, Frank. This is my second time. And how about you? Do you remember your first reaction to it? I do. The first time I read it, I picked it up deliberately because it was a book I had always been aware of and was on my list of things to read. It paints a very stark picture of not so much the Russian Revolution itself, because that has really come and gone in this story, but the aftermath and how the revolution treats its as you mentioned, original heroes. Well, Patrick, I find it interesting that both you and Joan use words like communist and Russian revolution where they're never used in the novel. Correct. Kessler never mentions Russia. Communism is never mentioned. To the contemporary reader, it was obvious what he was talking about. In fact, Kessler starts his novel with this statement, the characters in this book are fictitious. The historical circumstances which determine their actions are real. Right, and I think one idea he had in not naming Russia or the communist revolution is because I think part of the story and the lessons from the book aren't limited to Russia or communism for that matter. This is a story of revolutions. And about tyranny and about absolute power corrupting absolutely. And it doesn't matter where that power is coming from. Right. And unfortunately, you can still read in the newspapers today about oppositional leaders in countries all over the world who are arrested or simply disappear. And this book gives you an idea of where they might be. I think you're right. The absolute drive to absolute power continues even today. Mm -hmm. Okay, Joan, our novel starts with the first chapter, and it's called The First Hearing. There actually are only four chapters. They're titled The First Hearing, The Second Hearing, The Third Hearing, and The Grammatical Fiction. Tell me how the first hearing chapter opens. It opens with the cell door slammed behind Rubashov. To those of us who've never been in prison, that sounds shocking. But it's not shocking to Rubashov. No. He goes on to look around. He says, okay, I've got clean blankets. Looks like the straw mattress is newly filled. The bucket is clean. Even the window was at a decent height so he could see outside. He was pretty calm. 
a lot calmer than I think I would have been. Right. Well, it turns out that he knew this was coming. This was not his first time in prison. As a matter of fact, he'd been having an ongoing dream for the past couple months where he's waking up by soldiers who rough him up, try to bring him into prison. But of course, then he does wake up and realizes that he's not in prison, but it's only a matter of time. So this time, he did get woken up by the soldiers. He is brought to prison. Finally, he can have a good night's sleep. He knows the rules and he's going to play by them. And he starts playing by those rules almost immediately with the old warder. Right. It's the first morning for him. There's a bugle call and everyone's expected to get up and salute at the door. And he doesn't. The warder comes and says, why didn't you? And he says, I'm sick. Apparently he knows the rules. If you're sick, then you get to stay in bed and then they'll take you to a doctor. So he had a toothache. But he forgot part of that rule. If you're sick, you don't get fed. Actually, it's the rule that changed. He was astounded that they wouldn't feed a sick man. He's about to learn that a lot of the old rules have changed. He sure is. But Patrick, apparently the rules for communicating with the guy in the cell next to you haven't changed. They figure out how to do that pretty quickly. That's right. He remembers that from his previous years of imprisonment. There is apparently a universal code or language that prisoners tap out on their cell wall so that they can speak with each other. Oh, it's really neat. You take the alphabet, separate them into five rows. A through E is one through five. And then if you wanted to tap the letter B, then you would tap one, and then you tap two times. One would be for row one. Correct. Two times would be for a second letter. Yeah, it's really kind of fun to think through that. And tedious when you think you have to tap out all those things. But as he said, you know, if you do this enough, you just sort of hear the rhythm and know the words. It's really a whole new language. And he's very thankful when his first correspondent turns out to be somebody who's adept at this because he was afraid he may have to spend weeks trying to train a new prisoner to how this system works. Yeah. Well, and this is how we get some of the information as well. Eventually, this unknown prisoner in cell number 402 asks Rubashov, what are you in for? What was your crime? And actually, all he has to answer with is his name. He taps out his full name. There's a long pause, and 402 doesn't respond for a while, and then he taps out, serves you right. So clearly, this unknown prisoner number 402 knows the story of Nikolas Salmanovich Rubashov. Right, he's obviously known to him. That gets us to our next question. Number 402 does ask, why? And Rubashov has a pretty interesting answer. He says, political divergencies. (laughs) And then 402 says, bravo, the wolves devour each other. Now, what are we to understand from that response? Well, it tells us one thing about 402, that we know he's not a political prisoner in that sense. And we don't know exactly who he is. We only know who he is through Rubashov's musings about him. What do we learn about Rubashov? First of all, you realize that Rubashov was, until his arrest, a high-ranking official in the party. And he's been arrested by that party. Right. And in fact, you also get the impression that his picture used to hang right up next to Number Ones, who is the leader of the country, whose name is never mentioned, Reed Stalin but he's referred to as number one. Patrick, the next question that number 402 has is also very (laughs) important. The question is, when did you last sleep with a woman? And it's not just a humorous aside. 402 is serious. He wants him to go on and on and keep telling me. Yes, exactly. Give me details. And for a while, Rubashov, in fact, does give him some details. Yes, Rubashov accommodates him because he realizes now that he has nothing in common with 402. Their political ideologies are complete opposites, but he is... Rubashov's only link 
to the outside world. That's right. If he can't communicate with number 402, then he's blocked off from communicating with number 400, number 398, and all the way down the cell block. And apparently on the other side of him, the cell is empty at this time, so he can't communicate in that direction. Plus, he feels sorry for the guy. So essentially, he shows him a little leg. <laughs> yes. Well, there is one other way he can know about what's going on on the cell block. They all have a little peephole in their door, and by looking out the peephole, he can see the three doors of the cells across from him. And it's during one of these times when he sees the prisoner across the cell block. Number 407. Number 407, reaching out for bread, and all he can see of this prisoner are his hands and his arms. But just that sight alone causes him to have the first flashback in our novel. He goes back to 1933 when he was in power, and he was meeting with Richard a German cell leader, and he was meeting him in a museum. And his purpose for going there to meet with this man is to tell him that he is being ousted from the party, which essentially is a death sentence. They almost never have eye contact. They're talking under their breaths to each other as they sit on a bench. And as he's talking to him without looking at him, he sees behind his head a painting of Mary mourning Jesus, a Pieta. Right. But all he can see are the arms and the hands. Throughout the conversation, he keeps wanting to look up to see the whole thing. Something intrigues him about it, but he never actually gets to do it. Now, Patrick, what's the point of having this flashback? What is this flashback telling us about Rubichaud? I think it's telling us two things. One, it's a little ironic because you get the feeling that he's now flashing back to something that he feels he did that was wrong. So here he is sitting in prison for a crime he didn't commit, recollecting a crime that he did commit. Right. We get a picture of Rubichaud ruthlessly cutting someone out of the Communist Party. When we now think he's in prison, perhaps to be ruthlessly cut out of the Communist Party himself. But this is also the first time that you get just an inkling that he is looking back and feeling pity for Richard, which clearly when he's telling the story of how he ousted Richard, he felt no pity for him whatsoever. But do we feel these are crocodile tears? I don't get the sense that he feels sorry, but I think he has a sense that he's getting what's coming to him. So maybe he doesn't regret his actions, but at least he's self-aware enough to see the irony in these two circumstances as they're juxtaposed together? That's yes. probably more likely. Okay. And Patrick, we quickly go into another flashback that just drives that irony home. He's now being punished for actions that he took years ago on behalf of the party. That's right. He is sent to Belgium to meet up with some of the local communists who work in the ports there to get them in line with the new party position, which they might not be aware of. That's right. These are communists that are straying a bit from the party line. Well, that's the ironic thing. They're really not straying from the party line. They're holding what had been the party line up till then. In this case, it has to do with boycotting shipments to different fascist countries. Well, it turns out the new party line is the boycott stands except Russian goods can be sent to these fascist countries because the motherland needs the money. Well, to these international communists, that doesn't seem right, obviously. But Rubishoff has to smooth things over with them and let them know what the new party line is. Because it's not about what is right or wrong. It's whatever the party decides they want to do at that moment. So you get the sense that this is about power and not about communist ideology. Is this where we start to see absolute power corrupting absolutely? I think that's exactly it. And this is another hint of why it is that Rubishoff, former high-ranking official, is now sitting in a prison cell. You get the idea of the party taking a turn. A turn he couldn't follow. A turn he couldn't follow. All right. And then after this flashback is when we meet the next character in our novel, Ivanov. Well, Ivanov is actually an old college friend of Rubishoff's and a former battalion commander with him. 
they are peers, but not anymore. Ivanov has been given the job of interrogation of Rubashov. And this really starts the first hearing of our chapter heading. Correct. And because they know each other, Rubashov feels like he can say to his old friend, you know this is ridiculous. Rubashov almost immediately dismisses Ivanov by saying, look, you know it's a show, I know it's a show, call it whatever you want, but at least be true to yourself. Right, and Rubashov, though in extreme pain, because his toothache continues to throb, feels some sort of personal satisfaction that he can hold his own with Ivanov and tell him, I'll play the game with you, but I'm not signing any confession. Well, the game is he's going to be asked to appear in a public trial confessing to a whole host of traitorous crimes against the motherland. And Ivanov is making an appeal to him. You know how this game goes. You can be dealt with into two categories, the public category where you make this public confession or the administrative category for non-cooperating suspects and witnesses. And if you have an administrative sentence, it's just a bullet in the back of the head. Execution at dawn, right? And no one will ever know about it, and you'll never be heard from again. And he makes appeal to the fact that he could get out of this alive. This is how Ivanov sends Rubashov off. I was obliged to let you explode once, else you would have exploded at the wrong time. Haven't you even noticed that I had no stenographer present? And I think Kessler holds out a little hope to the reader, because up to this point, there's been this resignation in Rubashov, right? He even said earlier, well, I guess I'm going to be shot. And he's resigned to it. But here we have Ivanov opening the door a little bit, saying, look, I need a confession from you. In public. Right. And if we get that, before you know it, you'll be back in the ring, back in power. You know, I totally agree with you, Patrick. At the end of that chapter on the first hearing, I did have some hope. I did have a feeling that maybe we're going to get through this. But I got to tell you, as soon as I read the quote that Kessler starts his second chapter, the second hearing with, the hope dimmed. Let me read you that quote. When the existence of the church is threatened, she is released from the commandments of morality. With unity as the end, the use of every means is sanctified. For all order is for the sake of the community, and the individual must be sacrificed to the common good. That does not bode well for Rubashov. No, it doesn't. All right, Joan, Patrick, before we start our second hearing with Ivanov and Rubashov, we actually meet the scariest character in this novel. His name is Gletkin. I don't think we ever get his first name. He's another one of the examiners at this prison. Well, he appears to be Ivanov's subordinate. They clearly have a difference of opinion about how Rubishov should be treated. Ivanov, because he knows Rubishov, is giving him a couple weeks to think things over. And he's confident that Rubishov will reason his way to the right decision and provide a full confession. Gletkin doesn't think they should wait for that. He wants to use stronger measures. Physical pressure, as he puts it. Well, Joan, the biggest problem with Gletkin is that he was not there at the beginning of the revolution. All he knows about the revolution is the way it is today. Ivanov was there at the beginning with Rubashov. He can at least see, yes, there's been some changes. Yes, we've made some mistakes. Right. Gletkin knows nothing of the dreams of the revolutionists. He only knows about the reality. When he was coming into power, he was first tasked with interrogating peasants, trying to get these peasants to confess to counter-revolutionary activities, which in this sense would have been something like growing corn. Right, growing corn on a private plot. Right, and they were told to do this through flower garden theory. Be nice to them. You know, let them see the wrongness of their ways. And, of course, the peasants just laughed and said, you know, torture us all you want. And pretty much by accident, they ended up letting one of the peasants stay up all night and then question him, and they could see how much weaker he was. And quickly they realized, oh, if you use physical pain on these people, you can get them to confess to anything. And Gletkin 
grew up with that and believed, well, that's the best way to get the best answer. All I know is that when I read about Glickin, I was awfully glad that when Rubashoff was going back into that second hearing, it was going to be Ivanov and not Gletkin. Right, but he doesn't get to go into that hearing right away. What happens first? Well, he's actually, of course, sent back to his cell, but life gets better for him because Ivanov wants him to be able to reason his way to this confession. So he's given paper, pencil, cigarettes, food on a regular basis. The ability to purchase items from the canteen. And actually, he gets to go walking in the exercise yard from time to time. Yeah, but all this gives him an opportunity to think back on the things he's done in his career, which brings up another one of his victims. Arlova. And who was Arlova? Arlova was his secretary when he was heading up the Russian trade delegation to, they don't name the country, they say B, so Belgium, Britain, not sure. So anyway, he has a, I guess you wouldn't call it romantic at all relationship, but he (laughs) does have a relationship with Orlova. Well, essentially, Orlova believes in the party, and she says to him, you will always be able to do with me what you like. And he does. Yes, he does. First, he likes being with her. And then when the party takes another bend in the river and he has an opportunity to pull Arlova along with him, he doesn't. Right. Eventually, she's accused of political inconsistency. And he can come to her rescue, but at his peril. So he doesn't. Nope. And this is what he's thinking about now. Again, another person from his past that he treated pretty much the way he's being treated now. Right. And I think it's getting harder and harder for him to remember his past. And Arlova particularly, he remembers the soft curves of her neck and begins to think maybe there's more to life than cold hard reason. But Patrick, eventually he's brought back to the present by some noise on the other side of his cell. He's now got a new neighbor, number 406. Right, Rip Van Winkle. Which he finds out through tapping to 402. Right. Rip Van Winkle has spent his last 20 years in solitary confinement in an unnamed southern European country He had been a communist. He was imprisoned by the fascists in that country, and he's eventually released. Right. Essentially, after being in prison for 20 years in what I think is probably the country of Italy, he's released by the authorities, sent to Russia, because after all, that's where he wanted to be for those 20 years he was a communist in prison. But he's immediately arrested in Russia as an immigrant, thrown in jail, and he thinks he's still back in Italy. He doesn't realize that it's his beloved communists that have now thrown him in jail. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. And he says, I'm not giving up hope. One day I'll make it there. This is the promised land. And he doesn't realize that he's there. And the promised land is a jail cell. Unbelievable. Well, Patrick, we've seen that he's gotten some messages from inside the prison. He actually gets a message now from outside the prison. Right. He has a chance to go visit the prison barber. And while getting shaved, the barber slips a crumpled up piece of paper inside of his shirt collar. What does that paper say? Die in silence. Yeah, that's kind of an ominous message, but we don't really know where that came from. We don't know if that came from his supporters or from maybe the people higher up who don't want him to go through with a public trial. The sense is that there are some people that don't want him to give the party this show trial. And speaking of shows, right before Rubashov is sent to his second hearing, tell me what happens with Bogrov. Well, this is such a terrible scene. It's nighttime. 
and Rubashov is recognizing that the silence that he's hearing is different than the silence that he hears every single night. He starts tapping to 402, and it turns out that 402 knows that this is the night where some executions are going to go on. Actually, 402 puts it a different way. He says, tonight, political differences are being settled. Right. And then it starts. 402 taps. They're coming. They're coming. It goes back and forth. Who is it? Who is it? And it turns out his name is Michael Bogroff, commander of the Eastern Fleet. And, of course, Rubashov knows this man. They were roommates in exile earlier in their careers. Again, another one of the old heroes of the revolution now accused as a traitor of the new party. Right. And as Bogroff is being dragged down the hallway of the prison, everybody in their cell, as they go by, start drumming on their doors. And you hear this drum grow louder until, of course, the doomed man is brought into Rubashov's vision. And it's just for a second, but Rubashov sees this man being dragged piteously, and as he's taken beyond his vision, the man is crying out, Rubashov. And essentially, that's what convinces Rubashov that this was set up as a show for him. And actually, eventually, Ivanov admits that. Yes, this just happened to occur the night before Rubashov was to have his second hearing, and presumably his answer for Ivanov. And when Ivanov comes to visit, he acknowledges that this was a heavy-handed tactic on the part of his subordinate, Gletkin, and that he hadn't approved of what happened. But this is sort of an ominous note for Rubashov. It shows Rubashov that Ivanov is not in complete control of his subordinate, and we already know what this subordinate could be like. Right, and it also is a jolt to Rubashov's system. He had heard of people executed before. He had ordered it to be done before. But he had never seen it. Suddenly it was human to him, and it seemed inhuman, which makes him weak. And it's at this point, when Ivanov is in Rubashov's cell, that we come to understand this is the second hearing. And he says, we need your confession, we need your public trial. What is Rubashov's answer to that? Well, he still thinks that he can reason this out with Ivanov. And unfortunately for Rubashov, he's still thinking in terms of right or wrong, in terms of facts. Somehow that hasn't been drilled out of him, as it appears to have been drilled out of Gletkin. Ivanov says to him, come on, we are the consequential people. You know, we've made all the difference in the world. And Rubashov comes back at him with, Right. We're so consequent that in the interest of a just distribution of land, we deliberately let die of starvation about five million farmers and their families in one year. It's almost as if he's trying to get Ivanov to see it his way. Which isn't going to happen. Yeah. But even with these misgivings, by the end of this second hearing in Rubashov's cell, I think we can conclude that Rubashov has come to a decision. That's right. As Kessler writes... When the door had closed behind the visitor, Rubashov knew that he had already half-surrendered. Who could call it betrayal if, instead of the dead, one held faith with the living? And so, at the end of this second hearing, Rubashov has made a decision, but then Ivanov makes a mistake. Right. Ivanov leaves there, goes by Gletkin's office, and essentially gloats in his face and says, Ah, I got him my way. In fact, Ivanov calls him an idiot, says you should be shot before Rubashov. Oh, that didn't seem like a smart thing to say. And that's where the second hearing ends, and now the third hearing begins. But this hearing is going to be a little bit different. Gletkin was now in charge of Rubashov's case. And even the pretense of friendliness is now gone from these hearings. That's right. When Rubashov arrives in Gletkin's office, there's now a stenographer there. There's the classic interrogation light, so bright, in fact, that he can't even look at it. He's got to turn his head away, makes his eyes water. And this interrogation goes on around the clock. 
with Rubishoff not being allowed more than an hour or two of sleep in between sessions. That's right. At some point, Glecken even boasts, I don't have to physically touch you at all to physically destroy you. You get a sense of how somebody would do anything to just be allowed to lay down and go to sleep. And Gletkin seems to him this all-powerful, all-perfect being, never seems to need to eat, never seems to need to leave the room for any reason whatsoever, whereas Rubishoff, of course, has all those needs. And it humiliates Rubishoff when he has to ask for food or ask for a bathroom break or ask for a cigarette. Right, he can't even console himself with the fact that usually when this happens, there's a team of interrogators. Not so with Glecken. He's awake for every hour that Rubishoff is awake. That's right. Rubishoff can't even say, I beat your best three guys. This is just one guy, mano a mano. Right. And in fact, we don't really know how long this third hearing goes on. Rubishoff himself doesn't know if it's days, weeks, perhaps even years, he says to himself. I just don't know. We get the feeling maybe five, six, ten days, something like that. Right. I think there are seven discrete charges, which they're debating, that Rubishoff is going to confess to. But as you said, Patrick, in the end, he doesn't really know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's agreeing to. He tries to argue. He tries to negotiate. But in the end, whatever Glecken puts in front of him, Rubishov signs. Well, the interesting thing is he still thinks somehow he's doing some sort of duty. He could have just said, I'll sign them all and this could all be done with. But he felt the need to go through this charade of making sure that all the charges against him were somehow proved. Although every once in a while he makes the mistake of proving that their proof is wrong. And he realizes, why am I doing that? All that does is prolong the agony. Right. They're not going to change their mind. The whole point of this process is to change Rubishov's mind. Right. And the more he shows that he's still thinking for himself, the worse off it's going to be for him. Why in his mind is he guilty of something? What does he think he's guilty of? Well, I think there's probably two things. One in the back of his mind may be the victims that he's thought about while he's been in prison. Arlova, Little Loey, Richard, and Richard. Also, there's sort of a rational aspect to this, which he's been convinced of, which is that if he ever held any oppositional attitudes towards the party, a logical conclusion to that would be to commit some of these crimes down the line somewhere. An example that comes to my mind is with Admiral Bogrov. He knows it's absurd for the party to execute an admiral because he's advocating one size submarine where the party thinks they should have another size submarine. Right. If you're willing to oppose the party in the size of submarines they build, then the logical extension of that would be you would oppose the party in anything. You would sabotage the party. Same with the extension of if you believe the party's wrong in executing a man for thinking about the wrong size submarine, then you are opposing the party. Right. And if you believe that number one is wrong in a decision he makes, the logical extension of that is to assassinate number one, which is one of the things he's charged with attempting to do. Exactly. So he actually says at one point, I plead guilty to having placed the idea of man above the idea of mankind. So he still thinks that somehow he's been a little bit weak in caring for the individual as opposed to the party. Is it also possible that in the back of his mind he feels that he can confess to these kinds of thoughts and these kinds of crimes and still survive? Under Gletkin, I don't think he is under that illusion anymore. Well, now, Gletkin's a puppet. Gletkin isn't really going to be the one to decide he needs to be executed. Gletkin might be the executioner, but someone is pulling Gletkin's strings. Is Rubishoff aware of that, do you think? Certainly by the end of the third hearing, when he finds out that Ivanov has been shot, my guess is he doesn't hold out much hope for himself. So some of the musings that he had early in the novel that maybe he'd be released to some sort of house arrest, be left to read his books and write his diaries, that's gone. By the end, I think he hopes that 
perhaps he'll be rehabilitated historically, but not in life. All right, Joan, Patrick, this is the last chapter, the grammatical fiction. Patrick, what is the grammatical fiction? Rubashoff's trial. Essentially, this whole last chapter is a newspaper article of Rubashoff's final trial, being read by a young communist to her father, an old communist. Right, which includes Rubashoff's public confession. Right, and the daughter is, of course, of Gletkin's generation. So she reads this saying, this man was a terrible traitor, and thank goodness we got him out. But, of course, her father, the old porter, was actually there at the beginning of the revolution, and he has some respect for Rubashoff. He doesn't know whether what the daughter's reading is true or not. He just knows it's terribly sad, and he cannot express that, or the daughter might report him. That's right. He has to read his Bible in secret. He can't even trust his own daughter. Another insight into the communist culture here, he's actually concerned that she would turn him into the authority for his seditious thoughts. Right. She's recently married. They have no place to live together. She could do worse than taking over her father's old apartment. Or Patrick, what is his sentence? Death by shooting. Like Rubashoff knew from the very beginning. And the next section opens, so now it was all over. Rubashoff knew that before midnight, he would have ceased to exist. And then we read his thoughts. One part of him reaches back to some vague, happy memories of childhood, of the blue of a sky, of trees on the driveway of his parents' house things that weren't supposed to matter in his life, in anyone's life, and yet they persist in his brain. Yes, there's some happy memories, but Joan, there's a deep, deep regret here as well. Right. Then he looks back over his 40 years as a member of this party, and what did it bring him to? This logical conclusion they're so proud of that they all have worked towards it's coming to his death. It's come to so many other people's death, and he's beginning to think, Perhaps there was a mistake in the system. If this is what we have done, could this be right? Right, and then the muffled drum roll begins, and the message from 402, you have about 10 minutes. And that's essentially how our novel ends. We have regrets, we have happiness, and we have a drum roll with a definite conclusion. Right, it's a powerful book. And in a book like this, we can't get to every character We can't get to every moment. So, Joan and Patrick, now if you have a moment or a character you want to talk about, this is your time. Oh, there are so many things to talk about in this book. And amazingly, there are characters we weren't able to discuss. You have to read the book to learn about these other people who are involved in Rubertoff's demise and their own demise for the most part. But the one thing that I want to talk about now is poor 402. This man, we don't know how long he's been in prison, but clearly it's years. And we learn at the end that he has 18 more years to go. That's right. 402 even taps it out. Think of it. Another 6,530 nights without a woman. Right. And he regularly taps over to Rubashoff. Do talk to me. Do talk to me. This is the only way this man gets to communicate with anyone in this world. He's never let out into the exercise yard. He has lived and is going to live inside that cell for most of his life. And it's painfully pathetic how Rubashoff regularly ignores him. And then at the end, at the very end, when 402 knows that Rubashoff is facing his end, 402 taps over to him, I envy you. I envy you. Oh, it's so sad. It's heartbreaking. Patrick? Actually, I do want to mention one of those conversations between Rubashoff and 402. And this occurs just after Rubashoff has decided that he's going to confess. He taps, I am capitulating. And 402 taps back, I'd rather hang. 
Rubishoff responds, each according to his kind. 402, I was inclined to consider you an exception. Have you no spark of honor left? Rubishoff, our ideas of honor differ. 402, honor is to live and die for one's belief. Rubishoff responds, honor is to be useful without vanity. 402 responds, honor is decency, not usefulness. Rubishoff, what is decency? 402, something your kind will never understand. Rubishoff, we have replaced decency by reason. Even when he says it, we know he doesn't really believe it. Right. right. I got to tell you, one of the things that really struck me about this novel is it's written by a communist. And really, Arthur Kessler and Rubishoff are both idealists who have been disillusioned. And this is how Rubishoff says it at the end. Moses had not been allowed to enter the land of promise either, but he had been allowed to see it from the top of the mountain, spread at his feet. Thus it was easy to die with the visible certainty of one's goals before one's eyes. He, Nicholas Samanovich Rubishov, had not been taken to the top of a mountain, and wherever his eye looked he saw nothing, nothing but desert and the darkness of night. There's a man who's disillusioned. Yeah, you get the sense that there's this huge battle going on in his brain because he can't accept that the people who believed in honor, in decency, even in what is written in the Bible, might have been right. And yet he wanted to. Well, to continue the religious theme, I think we have to look no farther than the title of the book, Darkness at Noon. I think that's an obvious reference to Christ's death on the cross, that darkness at noon. Right, but who's the Christ in our novel? So that's the question. Is it Rubishoff? He's offering himself up for the party. Yes, but even he doesn't really believe in his sacrifice. But in the end, that's what he does. Right. Maybe he doesn't have the true faith, but he is a martyr figure, right? He is this sort of secular Christ figure offering himself up for the good of the party with the cold consolation that perhaps decades later, if it turns out that he was right, that the party will rehabilitate him, resurrect him. You know, I totally agree with you about Rubashov seeing himself as a martyr, perhaps even seeing himself as a Christ-like figure. But for me to make that jump Boy, that's pretty tough to take. Well, I don't. And you almost get a little mad at yourself for feeling any sympathy whatsoever for this Bolshevik. Serves you right, I think, is the great summing up of this book. Like 402 said. But darkness at noon, if that suggests Christ's crucifixion, then who would be a better Christ figure, do you think? Well, that's right. But he's one confused Christ figure then, because shortly before he dies, as I've said, he's thinking about his 40 years wandering around this party. And he recognizes something. He says, The party denied the free will of the individual, and at the same time, it exacted his willing self-sacrifice. There was somewhere an error in the calculation. The equation did not work out. And has not worked out. Nope. And that's where we're going to end today's conversation on the novel Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kessler. Joan, Patrick, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me today. You're welcome, Frank. You're welcome, Frank. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and today I had a conversation about the novel Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kessler. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hello. Ted, first question for you. What in the background of Arthur Kessler allowed him to get so inside the mind of a high-ranking political prisoner of a totalitarian state? Arthur Kessler was primarily a writer, doing work for the fascists and then for the communists that would be the equivalent today of propaganda. Because of that, he was free to travel, saw a lot, but also became suspected and eventually was imprisoned several times, once for 100 days, condemned to death. That obviously was not carried out. Well, Ted, he had to be more than just a passing writer of the communist philosophy. I mean, in this book, our character was disillusioned and the rancor 
was on every page. Kessler must have been a true believer. Yes, he was not only a true believer, but he was also both writing the propaganda and seeing it as truth. But this was a man sent around Russia, for example, to glorify the Stalinist regime, to glorify the new Russia, to show what was going on in Ukraine. And he witnessed starvation, he witnessed deprivation, and he knew as a true believer of all this, that those were the people who weren't trying and the good people who were trying were doing well. So he just turned his eyes away from the truth and was doing all this until he began to get in trouble with the administration. But Ted, to write this book, Arthur Kessler was a true believer who no longer believed. Yes. You have to remember that Kessler was born in 1905, which means he was in his early 30s when experiencing all this. Still very much a young man, very much influenced by relative isolation and delighted to be paid to travel, to see things, to write about them, and in a sense to ignore some of what he was seeing. Gradually, it began to overwhelm him. He realized as he matured that what he was seeing was not the full story. What he was writing was not the full story. And when he deviated from anybody's party line, it just didn't get published. You know, I found this to be a very effective novel even now, 20 years after the end of the Cold War. What kind of impact did it have when it was first published? When it was first published, war had started. Arthur Kessler wrote the book and sneaked it out to the publisher in England just before the Blitz. So you're having a time when the book has been saved, in effect. It's going to be published. It's done. But there isn't time to begin disseminating it. By the time the war was over, this was becoming the strongest anti-communist book in Europe. Huge impact in France, which had a growing communist organization. People were beginning to understand Kessler's understanding that the individual was to be sacrificed for the greater good. And then when the greater good was achieved, individuals would have freedom. Total nonsense. He knew it, he wrote it, and he showed what would happen to some of the leaders who were comfortable going along with the state, even though the state was wrong. Ted, for me, the most powerful aspect of Darkness at Noon was the literary device where Kessler never mentions either the countries he's writing about or really the political and economic philosophy that he's writing about. By making it so universal and allowing for the possibility of this novel to be applied to almost any political theory that's gone wrong, that's what made this one of the world's greatest stories for me. I'm not sure that Kessler was thinking that way when he wrote it, but that is what assured that it became what's considered the most important anti-communist book of the last half century. Ted, I want to thank you again for your end notes on today's conversation about the novel, Darkness at Noon. You're welcome. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kessler. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Hey, nerds, I'm Sarah, the paper nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.